This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi today. We're going to talk on about Vancouver's new public art installation, the spinning chandelier on the show today. And I'm looking forward to your calls and your feedback on this particular piece of public art, whether you think it's a great thing or maybe not so much. I mean, this is a spectacular installation for sure. I've heard some complaints about it, though, that maybe the public, that maybe too much money was spent on it. But remember, it's private money. It was the developer that spent the millions of dollars on the spinning chandelier. It wasn't taxpayers. I'm still hearing some complaints, though, that maybe too much money was spent on this. Hearing some complaints as well about, well, in a city with lots of homeless and social problems, should you have a public art installation that is kind of reflective of conspicuous personal consumption with a fancy chandelier? It's a beautiful-looking thing for sure. And I think one of the hallmarks of a great piece of public art is does it create a buzz for sure? And maybe you might even get people coming to Vancouver just to see it, to check it out, which would be a good thing too. But it's an interesting discussion about the spinning chandelier. Here's your hot question today. Interesting article in the the Star Vancouver today by Melody Ma, who argues that art pieces commissioned by developers, like the spinning chandelier, does not serve the public's need, it serves their corporate needs. She argues the public should have a a say in designing this kind of public art, even if it's funded privately. Would you say yes, you agree with that? We're the audience, we deserve a say in it. Or would you say, no, it's private money, it's their money, they can do whatever they want. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find that hot question today. Please vote on it today and we'll bring you the results later in the show. At CKNW on Twitter. Give me a follow while you're there, please, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line today. Leave me a voicemail about the spinning chandelier. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. A motion that will be voted on or considered by the Vancouver School Board tonight. It's an anti-racism motion, and it comes after incidents in the previous school year, including one, you might remember, very disturbing racist video Uh, that was posted on social media, actually prompted a black high school student to transfer out of Lord Bing Secondary School. How should the school board deal with these racist incidents? Time to check in now with Vancouver School Board trustee Jennifer Reddy. Trustee, hi. Thanks for coming on. Hi. Good morning. Okay. Tell me about your motion. First of all, can you remind the listeners about that racist video there that made the rounds last year? Very disturbing. Well, there's definitely a range of issues. And while I can't comment specifically on specific incidents, um, it's not something specific to schools. And it's something that definitely you'll see throughout our city, throughout Canada, increase in hate crimes, not only about race incidents, but also gender-based violence, transphobia, homophobia, religious-based violence, ability. It's a, it's a big issue. Okay, I'll, I'll just remind the listeners what happened here. There was a, a, a video that was posted to social media last year of a kid uh, talking about his hatred for black people and it actually has triggered a, a human rights complaint against the vancouver school board for its handling of anti-black racism 
did that incident kind of trigger part of the, uh, the the motion that you've got in front of the school board tonight? Yeah, um, and so there's a couple motions. You mentioned the anti-racism strategic motion, so that's yeah. one of them that we're discussing tonight. The one that I'm bringing forward since June that's actually getting voted on tonight is a hate crime response policy, um, which is meant to be more all-encompassing when kids are subjected to um, hate-motivated or violent incidents at school. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that. What is the policy cool. right now when stuff like that happens? Yeah, we don't have one. So as a trustee, it's pretty, um, you know, it's pretty uh, frustrating. And sometimes I feel like I have a bit of a gap in terms of responding to children and parents and staff who come forward with concerns about incidents, either online, in person, in the hallways, on the way to school, after school. So I think it'll really be an important policy piece for us to lean on that is value-centered and actually talks about the protection of students when things like this occur. Yeah, so is there like, um, like if stuff, if stuff like this happens and it does, uh, how is it handled now? Is, I mean, is it kind of handled differently at each, depending on the incident? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have something called an administrative procedures uh, booklet. And this is really helpful if you're working in the schools day to day and you need to know what to do if and when X, Y, and Z happens. That's really helpful. And then from a governance perspective for a trustee, um, for me, it's really important to be able to say unequivocally, here's our policy. It matches with the BC Human Rights Code. It references the charter. Um, here's what we're ensuring you in terms of safety and protection when you're at our schools. Um, and that's where, you know, risk and liability and all of that comes into play. What about the perpetrators of these things? Are they held accountable? Like if you have somebody like this disturbing, disgusting incident last year where some racist video was uploaded to social media, uh, is the, are the kids involved in that held accountable? Are they expelled? Are they suspended? Like what happens to them? Yeah. So as you mentioned, everything's case by case. And so with this motion, a big critical piece of it, um, which is informed precisely by the, the specifics that you've mentioned, is that we want to be sure that all kids are supportive with a restorative justice measure. Um, restorative justice is meant to be a responsive tool and certainly won't work for everyone, but it's better than what we have right now. Um, and so it does give us an opportunity to reflect on what we do best, which is education um, and support young people when they are a part of this um, environment that potentially uh, breaches safety, breaches codes of conduct, and that we know what to do afterwards. Okay, what is restorative justice? How would that work in this in these examples? Yeah, um, so restorative justice, I mean, the point of the motion is so that we can hire an expert to actually connect with communities that want to inform the development of this policy. See, so what I'm not hoping to do is sort of be really directive and say restorative justice will include circles um, and supportive measures for everyone in X, Y, and Z way. What I'd actually like to see is the implementation of an expert um, at the district to actually help us design what that would look like. Um, because I think that is a piece that I feel is lacking is that actual expertise on what would uh, a policy-based restorative justice uh, response look like. Why not just expel these kids? Like if they do something racist, they post a racist video or they make racist threats, you're expelled, you're out. Right. I mean, that may very well be the outcome of implementing a policy like this. Um, I think I will really look forward to the experts to, to guide us so that we're working supportively with all kids and educators and so that ultimately we're creating people in this city that actually have sense of responsibility, guidance and learning in, in what it is we're partaking in. I mean, hate crimes are on the rise in Canada overall. So I think there's definitely a role, a, a role that boards can play.
Okay, speaking to Vancouver School Board Trustee Jennifer Reddy, like you mentioned that hate crimes on the rise, are we seeing incidents on the rise in the Vancouver School District too? Or are, are we kind of flying off the handle over sort of isolated incidents or is this becoming a bigger problem? That's a good question. I mean, the reference I made is really only about reported crimes. So think about all the issues that young people are uh, subjected to online. I think gender-based violence that's intersecting with race. Look at the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry. I mean, we don't have to look far to recognize what's actually going on. So, yeah, it's time to act. Okay, you also mentioned an anti-racism strategy, which you've been calling, calling for. How would that work? Yeah, so that's brought forward um, for tonight's meeting that was brought forward by Trustee Cho. Um, yeah, and that would really help, uh, I think, from a strategic perspective, look at a one, a three, and a five-year plan in terms of how we're strategically responding uh, to anti-racism. And yeah, uh, Trustee Cho spoke to that last week, and I think uh, it'll be good. It'll be a really good discussion to hear from other trustees tonight about how that could play out. Recognizing that the hate crime response policy is is not only about anti-racism, but a broader um, range of issues. Why is this important? Like we mentioned this this case last year with this ugly video that made the rounds in social media. It actually forced one black student to transfer out of that school, which is a terrible thing to happen to a kid. If a kid feels like he got to transfer out of the school, things are so bad. Like, why is it why is it important to have these kind of policies and in, in, in place? Yeah, I think uh, right at the outset, it helps young people understand their rights and responsibilities coming into a public education system, um, that when you're in the doors of this school and participating in anything uh, having to do with this school, that these are the expectations, but also our responsibility to young people as the adults in charge of this system. So I think it sets the stage for what the expectations of behavior are in a way that administrative procedures can't, um, because trustees ultimately uh, use policies to guide our work um, and that that's where I really feel confident that it's a starting point for us certainly it's not uh, sufficient to do the work but it is necessary okay we're following the discussion at the school board tonight thank you very much for coming on thanks Mike see you later you bet thank you that is Jennifer Reddy Vancouver school board trustee let's talk about the dangers now faced by sex trade workers and what can be done to better protect people working in this sector a brand new report says sex workers often experience violence on the job but just 38 percent of them actually report that violence to the police dr kate shannon is my guest executive director at the center for gender and sexual health equity professor of medicine at ubc one of the authors of the report hi thanks for coming in thanks for having me okay let's talk about your report here so uh, is it is that common that sex trade workers would experience violence on the job maybe not might might not surprise a lot of people but they don't go to the police when things happen typically so i mean our report uh which summarizes close to nine years of research looked at the experience of sex workers before and after the law changes so uh for many people may or may not know but there was a supreme court decision that came down in 2013 that struck down the previous uh prohibitive sex work laws for violating the right to security of the person uh, and what was replaced by the former conservative government in December 2014, so five years ago this month, uh, were laws uh, that essentially recriminalized men of the same aspects of sex work, but also went one step further in criminalizing the purchase of sex. And what our report essentially s shows is that lo looking at research both with sex workers before and after the law changes is that the laws continue to put sex workers at risk of violence and limit their ability to access critical uh, safety protections, including reporting violence to police. 
Okay, I always heard in Canada that prostitution was technically legal, like it is legal to buy and sell sex, but what is illegal is soliciting for the purpose of prostitution. Has that changed? Is that still the law? So... The selling of sex has always been legal in Canada, that's correct. Um, But since uh, December 2014, so five years ago this month, uh, the buying of sex, so the purchasing of sex has been criminalized, so it's illegal. Um, It is also illegal to, there's still many provisions that make it uh, restricted or illegal for sex workers in terms of communicating um, as well in public spaces, as well as... um, using or hiring or engaging with third parties. So there really are a number of laws that still criminalize most aspects of sex work, which essentially mean that while selling sex itself is legal, it's really difficult to work safely and legally. So it's legal to sell sex, but it's illegal to buy sex? Exactly. Okay. So <laughs> as you can imagine, a, a large contradiction. No, and I, I mean, I think that's exactly, I mean, what we see from the street-based sex work context is so long as one aspect, so the purchasing of sex is illegal, sex workers are still pushed, you know, are forced to work in more isolated areas because clients are being targeted by police. So really wow. it's recreating the same harms of the very laws that were struck by, down by the Supreme Court and what was a unanimous decision in 2013. So I think, you know, there's some strong concerns that what we have in place are not only similar laws, but in many ways worse laws than what we had previously. And that yeah. we really need to look to other models like New Zealand, which have decriminalized sex work. Okay. Like if you decriminalize, mm-hmm. is that the same thing as legalize or you just take a hands-off approach? How would it work? Great question. So I think there's often misconceptions between legalization and decriminalization. So decriminalization essentially means that you remove uh, the criminal laws targeting sex works explicitly, and then sex workers would have access to the same labor um, and human rights protections as other workers in Canada. So that would include, um, you know, protections for uh, any labor concerns, for any violence or exploitation they might experience. Uh, Legalized means that certain sex work is very heavily regulated and can only operate in certain contexts. So many people think of Amsterdam as a place where it's legalized. Um, and that's yeah. not what we're talking about. We're really talking about decriminalization, which is in New Zealand and parts of Australia have moved towards, um, which really removes the criminal aspects of targeting sex work and moves to allowing sex workers to have access to the same labor and human rights protections as other workers. So how would that make things better? That would give them ac- sort of workers' rights? Is there anything? How, what else would be improved? So, I mean, you know, some of the most concerning findings we saw was that over a nine-year period, only 26% of violent incidents were reported to police. Um, And the reasons for not reporting were lack of trust and fear of, uh, you know, police and criminal justice system, concerns that sex workers didn't have the legal protections under the law. Uh, So I think what we're really seeing is that so long as any aspects of sex work are criminalized, sex workers are not feeling safe to come forward to police and in many cases are still being targeted by police. So uh, Mm. I think what is critical is removing those laws so that sex workers can have access to reporting violence to police, to accessing um, any protections they need. So we also saw that there were not only no improvements in accessing health or community supports under the changes in the laws, but we actually saw a reduction in access to health services and community-led services um, following the law reform. So really suggesting that criminalization is still having strongly negative impacts on sex workers' safety and um, human rights. Okay, I'm speaking to Dr. Kate Shannon about her new report on, on this topic. Do you think that, what would you say to the complaint that if you were to decriminalize sex work, that you would send a message that this is a legitimate industry, that this is okay for people to go into this this type of work, and you might have more people entering the sex trade, being exploited, or more human trafficking if you kind of normalize it? 
Well, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, there are clear laws in place and all have always been around trafficking and exploitation. Um, and those, no one's suggesting those be changed. And in fact, I think the concern is that currently if sex workers don't have the ability to to uh, safely report violence or exploitation to police, they're not actually being protected under some of those laws. Uh, yeah. But sex work has existed and exists in across the world in you know any region or country. Um, and I think what we have seen in countries such as New Zealand and parts of Australia that have decriminalized sex work is there has no, been no big increase in sex work. What has just brought sex work out of the shadows and ensured sex workers have access uh, to violence or sexual harassment just like any other industry. So I think it is yeah. really important to move past that moral debate to understanding the really strong human rights concerns uh, that sex workers face under criminalization. Uh, and global bodies such as Amnesty International, World Health Organization, UN bodies have all endorsed uh, decriminalization of sex work as critical um, step um, towards health and safety. Because it's going to happen anyway, right? Like, exactly. You know, I mean, it's been called the oldest profession, I guess, for a reason. You know, it's just been around forever and will ne probably will never go away, really. Mm -hmm. so. No, and I think any uh, examples of other countries that have enacted similar laws to what Canada has right now, so end demand laws, which really are aiming to end demand, so countries such as France, Norway, Sweden, have seen no increase uh, or no decrease in ending demand of sex work. So the laws have not had any impact on the goal that they're stated. But in fact, just like what we've seen in Canada, also is seen in France and other places yeah. where sex workers are at risk of violence. Okay, I got just less than a minute left here now. Is this federal jurisdiction? You need the federal government to act on this? Absolutely. And the uh, Justice Ministry of Justice had has indicated um, interest. Um, they did bring a consultation together two years ago to start to look at the laws, and we're hopeful that with this second term um, and this commitment to you know upholding the Charter of Rights and Freedom, that there will be this evidence uh, will provide important support for them in reviewing in the laws and specifically at repealing the previous laws that have been put in place. Interesting report. Thanks for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. You bet. I appreciate it. Dr. Kate Shannon, professor of medicine, UBC. She's executive director at the Center for Gender and Sexual Health Equity. Born to be wild is right. If you're in British Columbia, you got to love the wilderness and getting outside. It's one of the great things about our province. I remember a few years ago, before I got married and had kids and I had more time on my hands, I got crazy into fly fishing my buddy taught me how to fly fish and i got the bug real bad and i visited a lot of really beautiful little lakes on uh, vancouver island a lot of these lakes were only accessible by driving up a logging road and i always remember one day i was driving with my pal out to this uh, beautiful uh, remote lake driving up this logging road and then there's a gate across the road and a big padlock on it so we couldn't go to the couldn't go to our favorite lake anymore, even though it's a public lake. You had this logging road, and I guess the logging company put a put a lock on the on the road. You couldn't we couldn't get up there anymore. This happens all around British Columbia. Did you know there's lots of public lands and public lakes that people can't get to because there's no trespassing signs or there's gates or there's padlocks? Lots of people fighting against this, the right to roam movement. Let's talk about it now. My guest is Rick McGowan. He's a director of the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club. He's been fighting this battle for years. Hiya, Rick. Good morning. Thanks for coming on. Also on the line, I got Douglas Todd, the very fine columnist at the Vancouver Sun. I highly recommend his article on this issue, which I've just tweeted out for you. If you give me a follow on Twitter. Hiya, Douglas. Hi, Mike and Rick. Hey, guys. Hey, thanks. Good morning. Thanks for coming on, guys. Rick, let me go to you first. Tell me about your fight on right to roam in British Columbia and specifically 
the Douglas Lake Ranch, and people may have heard about this one. Tell me about the status of that one is right now. Uh, right now, it's in it's in an, uh, the appeal state, and that's going to be heard on the 30th and 31st of March. Um, two different organizations have applied for what they call intervener status. They they get to uh, voice their opinions in the appeal process. Uh, BC Cattlemen's Association and the Outdoor Rec Council BC are going to in- input their ideas on the thing, okay. which actually gives it a lot broader um, scope. Where, where is Douglas Lake Ranch? Uh, it's about 30 miles north uh, east of Merritt. And why is this such a nice area? Because there, there's lakes in there that, you, that are public lakes. You used to, a lot of people used to go fishing on these lakes, right? Exactly, yes. So what, what happened? How come people are having trouble getting in there now? Well, this, this whole process started back in the mid-60s, and um, large, large ranches and landowners started um, realizing the value of public lakes and lands, and if they could control the access, then they could use that land or lakes for their own entrepreneurial use. And Douglas Lake, for example, has got 15 or 20 lakes like that that they are using for um, private fishing resort um, as in, in their entrepreneurial use. But and in that process, they've blocked or locked the public roads that go to these lakes. And the right. biggest problem is the BC government is allowing them to do it. Yeah, I mean that's not cool. I mean people should be allowed to access public land and public water for sure. I agree with you there. The Douglas Lake Ranch is owned by one of the richest people in America, right? This what's this guy's name? Stan Stan Kroenke? Is that how you pronounce his name? I, I believe so. Yes. Yeah, and he's uh, doesn't he own a bunch of sports teams? Uh, he does, three or what four of them, um, and, and he's married to Susan Walton, which is an heir to the Walmart fortune. Okay, have you ever met this guy? Never, no. <laughs> what, what would you say to him, Rick, if you ever had an opportunity to meet him? Uh, I, I don't like heck um, he would ever talk to low-life left us, but, um, you know, I don't know that somebody that rich is even that concerned about any little issues in British Columbia. Okay, well, you're certainly fighting the good fight. I, I, I agree with you. People should have the right to access public land and water. Doug, Douglas, let me go to you. And uh, yeah. one, I, again, like I really, I think you did a great job in the Vancouver Sun on this issue. I, I encourage people to check it out. This, this guy, uh, Kroenke, what sports teams does this guy own? He owns Arsenal, which happens to be my team in uh, the British Premier League. He owns uh, wow. Los Angeles Rams, the Colorado Rockies, um, basketball team, even a lacrosse team. Uh, he, he made wow. some money in, by himself in real estate, and then he married into the the Walmart family, and that uh, that really sort him into the stratosphere. They're, they're the richest family in the United States. Wow, so, this guy is super rich for sure. What what do you think about this right to roam issue? What are your thoughts on it? I think it's huge, I'm, and and I, Rick, the, the work that Rick McGowan has done with his Nicola Valley people is amazing, and Rick's knowledge of this is like encyclopedic and that's why he's been so effective at winning the first round of this case but i'd like to see it stretch across bc to support all those outdoors clubs and mountaineering clubs and fishing clubs that are trying to gain access as your intro said to public land public lakes like why is and the government as rick has found out is being kind of hopeless except for andrew weaver brought in a private members right to rome bill a couple years ago but it died, and we we don't even know how much the Green Party is willing to put into it right now. Yeah, I remember talking to Weaver about that bill when he brought in his Right to Roam bill, and mm-hmm. I remember him telling me he got reaction to that 
from across the province. He just got hundreds and hundreds of emails and Twitter posts and Facebook, you name it. He really touched a nerve on that thing. And do you think, if I, if I just go back to Rick from the Nicola Valley Fishing Game Club, Rick, is that because like this is going on all over BC, this kind of stuff? Oh, excuse me, absolutely. It's I don't believe there's a community anywhere in British Columbia that there is not illegally locked roads. But the trouble is, um, in the government and the different uh, types of legislation, there's lots of little gray areas the landowners are, are using to block. You know, it goes back to crown grants, and every crown grant had a road or tra- lane or trail going to it. But the government refuses to acknowledge that these roads are public. As we all know, there's a cost to govern. So they're willing to just let these uh, roads just go disappear into the past, which that does not, it's not fair because the access has to get to public places. So it appears we have to fight for every road in British Columbia where the Forest Lands Natural Resources Ministry, it's yeah. their mandate under the Attorney General to look after these resources for the people of British Columbia. Okay, how many of these are around the province, do you think, Rick? Like, are we talking, like, there's hundreds of, of illegally blocked roads or illegal no-trespassing signs, would you say? It would be in the thousands, for sure. Oh. Whoa. Okay, Douglas, why doesn't... Th- we, this is supposed to be a government of the people. There's an NDP <laughs> government supposed to be sticking up for the little guy. You'd think they'd be going to bat for some guy who just wants to go fishing on a public lake. What, what's the B.C. government doing about this? Uh absolutely nothing except getting in the way the judge's decision on the douglas lake um issue he was skating towards the government um not just the current government but previous governments them all um he said why do we have public crown lakes if nobody can get to them um he he was pretty kind of angry and he was the judge himself was trying to kind of foster a movement i think in this decision um, is this kind of an enforcement thing? Like, if, if you say to some landowner or a forest company or a rancher or something, look, you can't put a lock, you can't put a gate on this road, and they might just say, okay, fine, and then a week later the gate's back up? Was like a kind of, kind of cat and mouse game going on? Or, like, I don't know, why, why doesn't the government enforce this kind of thing? Well, Rick Knight know better, but the conservation officers in Nicola Valley were useless according to the, the court case, <laughs> they were kind of colluding with the private ranch owners. And so were the RCMP, oh. which even gets more bizarre. Okay, and Rick, Rick, tell me about that. How come we can't... What's it, why is it so difficult to fight this fight? Well, it's the true essence of politics. I mean, you get political contributors contributing to various political parties, and the super-rich contribute to every political party. You know, they can do it so easily, and be uh, anonymous under numbered companies or whatever, but then what they expect from the um, sitting um, politicians is in return, they want to be able to get away with um, doing this sort of stuff. And uh, a lot of them are wined and dined at these big ranches and resorts. And in Douglas Lake's case, I know that to be a fact that the uh, politicians were winding and dining at one of the resorts called Salmon Lake. Okay, well, I know that in British Columbia, we have now banned uh, political donations by corporations. We only have individual donations now. I don't know. Maybe that'll make a difference here here going forward. But people might remember, Rick, with your fight on the Douglas Lake Ranch battle, you won won in court. Wasn't it last year you won a big victory in court on this? Uh, Yes, we did win. But the ruling that the judge made was so elaborate, it allowed for all sorts of sort of ambiguities. 
And, and this is why um, the appeal process is going through. I mean, the B.C. government is appealing the special cost. They don't want to have to pay for anything. And Douglas Lake is appealing the access to the lakes. And we're appealing because it doesn't really specifically state um, what access is to the lake. So this is all going to be decided in um, end of March. Oh, man. How long have you been fighting this fight, Rick? Uh, myself, personally, over 30 years, and our fishing game club is, for now, we're getting into about the 10th year. Oh, my goodness. Why are you so passionate on it? You, this has been a 30-year battle for you. How come? Why, why are you sticking to it? Well, I used to work in highways engineering as a surveyor, and I realized that, um, you know, I knew a lot of the legislation and what public roads were and weren't, and, and we've seen uh, an epidemic of the illegal blocking of public ro- roads sort of um, evolving in, around the Nicola Valley then through the BC Wildlife Federation talking to different clubs around the province found out that this is going on everywhere and our mm. particular club was elderly directors and we unanimously decided that you know we're going to pass away here in you know next 10 or 20 years and we wanted to try to leave the world a little better place so we pooled our knowledge and expertise and said let's try to fight this and stop the blocking of public access yeah. So our future generations and grandchildren will still be able to freely recreate in British Columbia. Okay, good for you, Rick. I think you're doing a good job there. Douglas, awesome story on this in the Vancouver Sun. Thank you guys for coming on. Great, thanks. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. You bet. I appreciate it. Rick McGowan, he's a director of the Nicola Valley Fish and Game Club. Douglas Todd, columnist at the Vancouver Sun. Let's talk now about last week's sheer shocker. Uh... The resignation of Andrew uh, Scheer as the leader of the Federal Conservative Party. This was, I guess, a surprise to some degree, given the timing, although he had been under pressure to step down after he failed to win the last federal election. They had Justin Trudeau right where they wanted him. And they couldn't get it done. I mean, Trudeau mired in scandal, all kinds of ter- all kinds of problems. Still couldn't take him down. And the thought being, if you can't get him now, would Sheer ever be able to beat Trudeau? I think the answer in a lot of people's minds was no. And therefore, he's got to go and a new leader. Now he had been indicating that he might try to stay on there. And if he did, maybe that produced an internal backlash. Last week, we saw him suddenly announced he would resign as the federal conservative leader. He will stay on until a permanent replacement is chosen. Some people wanted to go, want him to go quicker than that. But now the race is on to replace Andrew Scheer as the federal conservative leader. And I'll tell you, this looks wide open to me. Lots of names being bounced around as a potential conservative leader. Let's check in with Colin Metcalf, now former director of regional affairs with James Moore. Boy, his name has come up, by the way, the former conservative MP, back when Moore was industry minister. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hiya, Colin. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for coming on. Do you think the resignation by Sheer last week is a good thing or a bad thing for the party? 
uh, I get, you know, it, it's it's different things for different people. I think for the Conservative Party of Canada, um, we can make it a good thing because it provides us with an opportunity to look at what, what happened in the last federal election, um, make some corrections, and in some cases, some significant corrections, um, uh, figure out how we we move the needle to uh, make up make up the seats that we didn't win that we thought we might win in the 905 in Ontario and other places in Quebec and here in British Columbia and do a better job next time. Okay, do you think that the the party's failure in the last election, if I could put it that way, was down to the leader? I mean, you know, it, the guys who support Shear will say, "Hey, he improved the seat count. You got more seats. You got more votes." won the popular vote, but was it really his his problem or was it his fault that they didn't get it done? It's never it's never as easy as to say what is the one thing that went wrong. It's an amalgam of things that goes wrong in any campaign and it's an amalgam of things that go right in any campaign that lead to the ultimate victory or the ultimate defeat. And that is the case in this last election. We, there's no one thing that went wrong um, for us, it went right for the Liberals, other than to say that I don't think that the ideas we put forward were as strong as they could have been and that they should have been. And frankly, the, the, the way that the leader failed to articulate his position on key issues and criticisms being leveled against him um, didn't help while people yeah. were trying to figure out who is this Andrew Shear guy moving forward? And that's what that's what the campaign was meant to do was to be able to define Shear um, in the way he wanted to be defined. Unfortunately, he couldn't answer the questions that were put to him, and other people defined him for him. Uh, Colin, let me ask you this: the this is why I think actually for for all the reasons you just articulated that this has been a tough little spot here for the conservatives here. With uh, it's 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 never easy with a leader effectively being forced out and also under some bad circumstances here with the complaints about the party had been paying for his kids private school education this is all kind of messy for the conservatives but i think overall it's probably more of an opportunity for the party for renewal and to try and get back on a winning track especially if they can put in a new leader who's going to be dynamic and and really get people excited let's talk about some of those potential new uh, leaders here colin and nobody is officially declared here yet to my knowledge but you can bet there's lots of stuff going on behind the scenes who do you sort of see as the top two or three people emerging here to replace Shear? well i think that on the yes maybe list um, you'd see probably at the top of the list is Ron Ambrose, the former uh, uh, interim leader of the Conservative Party, and um, then one of the one of the co-founders of the Conservative Party, Peter McKay, would probably be um, on the list. Aaron O'Toole, um, even Bernard Lord from uh, New Brunswick, I think would be um, would be on the list. There was a candidate uh, that most people haven't heard of, uh, Brian um, Brulot, uh, who is also sig- uh, signaling that he's. Um, thinking about running. Uh, he's a businessman uh, from back east. And then there's the folks like Michael Chong and Pierre Polyev, who have also, um, you know, have been have been contenders in the past and may throw their hat in the ring again. And if Rana doesn't run, you'd probably see Michelle Rempel or Candace Bergen maybe be there um, as as uh, as candidates. Okay, let's talk about Ron Ambrose for a moment because she's the one who's, I, I think, generating the most excitement here, a former conservative MP from Alberta. She held a, a whole bunch of uh, cabinet posts uh, during a, a very successful career at, in the House of Commons, was the interim leader at the party at one point. What do you think she would bring to this leadership if, if she indeed uh, did step forward? Oh, I think she'd bring a lot to the table. Um, I think the fact that uh, 
she's a solid conservative uh, you know, woman. Um, it would be, she'd be a very, very attractive uh, uh, political figure uh, for lots of people inside the conservative tent and from all different um, factions within that tent. So I would, in my, in my estimation, I put Rana high up on the list. Um, you know, she's been there uh, in the trenches as a cabinet minister um, serving uh, Prime Minister Harper in various portfolios. She's done, a, she's done a good job in that respect. She understands what it takes to, uh, to lead a caucus, having been the interim leader. Um, so I would put her as number one if she's willing to do it. Okay, what's your read on that? Because there's some speculation that maybe she would like to do something else, like maybe be Canada's ambassador to the United States, which I understand is bouncing around as a possibility. Is that possible that maybe Justin Trudeau would name her as the ambassador to the United States? I mean, that'd be a way to that'd be a way to get rid of her as a possible opponent. Well, you know the federal liberals are worried when they're making um, you know U.S. ambassadorships, uh, you know, dangling that carrot in front of uh, various people. So. Clearly, um, they, it's not just folks on my side of the, of the spectrum that think that Rana would be a, a very strong candidate. It would be folks on the other side that would that would be going up against her. So the best way to not go up against her is to offer something else she may want to consider taking. Okay, she's not saying yes, not saying no, as I understand it at this point. There's some people wondering if she's going to go for it. If she does go for it, I think clear kind of early front runner. If she doesn't, that's a big decision if she doesn't. What would be the pros and cons for her running for this job in your mind? Well, I mean, this is one of the toughest jobs in Canada. It's frankly one of the toughest jobs in the world, being the leader, uh, you know, of, of, of a of a you know, G seven nation. Um, you don't take this decision lightly, um, you know. And and coming in as an opposition member, um, I think that there's a a lot that needs to be done. You know, we we were blessed with very strong leadership from Stephen Harper for for more than a decade, and you know, uh, whoever has to go in and fill those shoes um, has to do so uh, at, a, at a time right now when we're, you know, we've, we've, we've just rebounded off of an election where, you know, we didn't do as well as we thought. So it's going to take some big ideas uh, and, and strong leadership to, to, um, to, to kind of fix what we need to fix internally. And then we can take our message externally to the country and say, look, we've got a better mousetrap. Here it is. Um, we think that we can do a better job than the existing uh, leadership in Ottawa. Okay, talking about the federal conservative leadership with my guest here, Colin Metcalf. He's a conservative party insider. Uh, what about Peter McKay, Colin? There's another name that comes up frequently, the former foreign affairs minister, former leader of the old progressive conservative party of Canada, if you remember them. I mean, this is a guy who was sort of seen marked for greatness at one point. Is, is he going to throw his hat in the ring? You know, I think that he's going to have to go through that decision process the way that Ron is going to have to go through it. Um, but, yeah, I think that he would be another uh, serious contender. Um, you know, uh, again, he brings the same you know, pedigree, if you would, um, having served in, in Harper's cabinet for the, uh, the length of the, of the previous government, um, you know, right up there with Rana. So, you know, two very, very strong uh, contenders. Um, they, they, they bring their pluses and minuses to the game, and, and, and the, the membership's going to have to decide where they want uh, to go. Um, you know, if, if Rana goes... I'll be the first in line to put up my hand saying, yeah, I'll help you do whatever you need. Oh, okay. Okay. You're showing your cards a little early there, Colin. What about your, what about your old buddy, James Moore? Well, I don't think James, uh, James left politics for a very, very important reason. That was to make sure that his, uh, that, that uh, he was going to, uh, 
spend more time with his family. And, um, you know, I've had lots of, ch- of, of discussions with, uh, with James, and I don't think anything has changed for him uh, since the days that he made the decision to leave in the first place. So, uh, and I totally respect that. Um, and, uh, and, you know, he's a young guy. He's 10 years my junior. And um, I would love nothing more than to see James Moore come roaring. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Back onto the political scene um, in time to come. Colin, thanks for coming on. Thank you. That's Colin Metcalf. He's a real long-time Conservative Party insider. Let's talk now about one of the more shocking and disturbing murder cases in our province in many years, and I'm talking about the case of Andrew Barry. That's the Oak Bay man in suburban Victoria who stabbed to death his own two young daughters in his apartment on Christmas Day. That happened two years ago. Back in September, he was convicted of second-degree murder in the deaths of those two little girls. Richard Zussman now, Global News online legislative reporter in Victoria, covering the sentencing hearing now for Andrew Barry. Uh, was it a tough morning in court there this morning? This is such an awful case, Richard. Yeah, Mike, it's awful. And yeah. this entire process has been awful uh, for the victims, for the families, uh, for those that love these girls. It's been an awful process. And so sentencing started today. Uh, it was a lot of uh, legal discussion today. Reporters in the courtroom, a few other people who are interested in this, but you know, none of those who were directly involved um, and it's emotional. You know, what was brought forward today is a jury in Vancouver found Andrew Barry guilty, as yeah. you mentioned. Yeah. And now a judge must sentence him. And what they were doing today was agreeing upon a set of facts laid out by the Crown and Barry's lawyer to determine those are the facts of the case. And then based on that, there will be a sentencing. The emotional stuff will start tomorrow. Uh, Sarah caught in. Uh, was the mother of Aubrey and Chloe, the two girls who were killed uh, as a uh, jury decided by their father. And she will present and speak to the court tomorrow and read out her victim impact statements. Wow. Wow. Uh, we are also expecting to hear from others in terms of victim impact statements. And then uh, a decision will be made by the judge around how long uh, Andrew Berry uh, should be sentenced uh, for the crimes that jury decided he committed. Can you imagine a mom having to go in front of a courtroom like that and talk about the impact on her and the rest of her family from the murder of her own kids. My goodness. So Sarah Cotton has spoken to the court before. It was yeah. during uh, the trial uh, in Vancouver. But she was asked very specific questions about, you know, where she was, you know, this murder, the murders happened on Christmas Day. Uh, the girls were with their mother and then uh, Andrew Barry, their father, took them for Christmas. And he told the story on the stand that, his lawyer said today in court that he still stands by that, you know, another man of dark complexion came into the apartment and killed the girls and then injured him and put him in a bathtub. And, you know, the Crown has said all along that this is just a fabrication. The story is not true. The judge will ultimately make that decision. The jury has already made that decision, believing yeah. it's a fabrication. Right. But it is just the most heart-wrenching thing you can imagine. So Sarah Cotton has taken questions around facts, but this is about emotion. 
right? This is about the impact that Andrew Barry's decisions have had on her life. And one of the things we heard in court today, and the Crown believes, is that Andrew Barry did this to get back at Sarah Cotton, at his ex-wife for separating with him at a time that was described as a very tough time, and that he has never shown any remorse for doing this act to get back at his ex-wife. And so, Clearly, it will be a tremendously emotional day tomorrow in court as we hear those words around the impact as the judge takes that information in assessing what should be a sentence. Okay, real quickly, Richard, what kind of potential sentence is possible in the case? So I think the minimum is 25 to life uh, with no parole uh, up until 25. It could be 20. Uh, uh, so okay. I think that that's the decision that they'll have to make is, you know, how long until parole right. and uh, eligible we, for parole eligible right? for parole yeah. eligible for parole yeah. i think the sense here is that this could it would be hard to believe that he'll get out but the system works its way and so they're trying to determine how many years until he has access to parole we know that he will be sentenced to quite a long term but the question will be about how long and then when will he first be eligible for parole Tough, tough story to cover. Yeah, brutal. Richard, thank you very much Thanks, for coming Mike. in. That's Richard Zussman, Global News reporter on the Andrew Berry trial. There's going to be an emotional day in court there. But on a happier Christmas story, remember last week when the Surrey Christmas Bureau had all those gift cards and equipment stolen? Those Grinches kicked in the back door, took 10000 bucks worth of stuff. And then last week on the show here, we had this moment of magic. Lisa, how would you like a, a check for $10,000 from my music and Mr. Blake Foundation here to replace um, the gift cards, etc.? Oh, my goodness. That would be amazing. Thank you so much. I'm just absolutely flabbergasted. Well, I'm happy to donate it. And I brought the the billboard check and the real check along with me this afternoon while I'm sitting in this fabulous studio here at CKNW. Oh, thank you so much. I just can't get over your generosity. That's amazing. Okay, that was last week, and that was Mr. Blake, well-known to CKNW listeners, probably one of the most generous guys who's given to this, all the station's causes, including this one. When we asked for help, he stood up with $10,000 to help out the Surrey Christmas Bureau. And you heard the voice there, Elisa Waring, the executive director, and she's here. She's just come in to pick up the check. So we knew she was here. We wanted to quickly bring her on. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm great. So you got your check there? I do. Thank okay. you. And thank you, Mr. Blake, once again. Yeah, that is something, $10,000. Now, I remember last week when I was talking to you, just a few hours after those Grinches kicked your door down and stole all your stuff, that you said to me that you're hoping that the day began like the Grinch who stole Christmas and by the end of the day it would be more like it's a wonderful life and we'd have a happy ending. I think you got your happy ending, right? Yes, we certainly did. The outpouring of support from the community was absolutely overwhelming and just really reaffirmed our faith in human nature. Okay, how much did you end up because it wasn't just CKNW helping out. There was all there was you know it's all hands on deck with people trying to help you guys out. How much did you eventually raise there 
Oh, it's still coming in, but I just have to say we had donations as extraordinary as Mr. Blake's, and we had donations from folks that that donated five dollars or yeah. as specific as twenty one dollars, as that's all they could afford. We also had offers of help from every other Christmas bureau across the Lower Mainland, which really moved me a lot because I know that all of those other agencies are struggling for those teen gift cards just as much as we were. And I'd like to say to any of your listeners out there now, if they still have those teen gift cards, they can send them to the Lower Mainland Bureau, Burnaby, the Tri-Cities, Delta, Richmond, all of those agencies that so generously offered to help us all need your help as well. Well, that's very kind of you to give a shout out to those other bureaus, Lisa. So they they, uh, stepped up to help you out too, huh? They did offer, yeah. and we are absolutely delighted. And it's just the spirit of Christmas. We all work yeah. in this in this area, and we all know what it's like. Okay, so you're out ten thousand bucks in the break in. How much do you think you brought in? Uh, much more than that. We had incredible. How much? Support. How much? Give me a number. We, we it, it's still coming in, and we we actually are probably not going to talk about how much we got in gift oh. cards. <laughs> Okay, I feel like I'm Just trying to, to pin on down the safe side. A, I feel like I'm trying to pin down a politician here, getting you to answer. Well, that's okay. That's okay. We're more that's than right. made whole. Let's put it that way. Oh, and that's good. And not only that, our security systems have been uh, greatly upgraded. We had oh, a, good. a lot of support from the community in that respect too, including a couple of wonderful guys named Gary and Jazz, a couple of local welders who popped in and said, "You know what? We don't have much money. We can't donate anything, but we're here to fix your doors." And <laughs> Uh, and they they welded everything up, and everything is wow. totally secure. I love it. This has been great, Lisa. Thanks a lot for coming in. Thank you so much. You bet. That's Lisa Waring, executive director. Oh, by the way, Lisa, what's the website again? If, if people still want to help out, www.christmasbureau.com. Christmasbureau.com. Great. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa Waring, executive director of the Surrey Christmas Bureau. There's a story that had a happy ending for you for sure. Let's talk a little BC politics here now with my guest, McLean Kay. He is the editor-in-chief of the Orca website. They do a terrific job over there. McLean, thanks for coming in. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Here's the deal with this. At Every year at this time of year, the premier, whoever is in charge, and this is a tradition that's been going back for many, many, many years, does a series of one-on-one sit-down interviews with members of the press gallery, of which you are a member. Yes, I am. And... You get to do uh, a freewheeling one-on-one interview with the premier in his office. I got my interview last week, so I had 15 minutes with him. I encourage people to check out my column in the province newspaper on Sunday that was generated from that. And here you are. You're a member of the press gallery. So when you asked him for your interview, how'd your interview go with Horgan? Uh, well, unfortunately, it didn't happen. Uh, I didn't ask him directly, to be fair. I went through his communications people, and um, they said that it, uh, it wouldn't be happening this year. So you didn't get an interview? I did not get an interview. Okay, so why not? What was the stated reason that you didn't get an interview with the Premier? Well, the officially stated reason was time constraints. I'm sure that it had more to do with it than that, but um, they were. Uh, they just simply said the Premier didn't have time for me this year, and uh, that we should... Time constraints. Next- time constraints. Yeah, okay. This is supposed to be like, these are 15-minute sit-downs. Yeah. That's what everybody's getting, 15 minutes. You couldn't find 15 minutes for you. Well, that's, yeah, it was unfortunate. That's a bunch of bull. I bought your... And we both know it. Yes. Let's talk about your sort of political background, because you come from, before you got into journalism and this website and this enterprise you got going and as a member of the press gallery, Mm -hmm. 
you were working with the Liberal Party, right? Uh, with the with the government. I was with the, the Liberal uh, the, government. Yeah, tell tell me about your job there. Uh, I was the uh, Premier Christie Clark's manager of communications, but really I was her speechwriter, and I did that from 2012 until um, until the government changed in 2017. So would you there therefore describe yourself as a partisan liberal? Uh, I wouldn't anymore. There was a time in which that was explicitly my job description. Yes. Do you think this is why you didn't get an interview with the premier? Oh, I'm sure. I'm 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 positive that they had some uh from their point of view understandable doubts. But I I mean I'm I'm a known commodity now. I've been here yeah. since last October, not this most recent one as a member of the press gallery. Right, and you're a frequent guest on this show. Yes, I am. I mean, we've brought you on frequently to be part of political panels here, and I'll just say for the record that I think that the Orca website that you guys have started up is doing a terrific job. Well, thank you very much. And I, th I find the coverage on there to be very fair and balanced. Um, you guys have also broken some good stories on there. I remember this, the, story, the, the great story that you broke here this year was about the booze on... BC Ferries, remember? I do. Tell, of course yeah. you remember it. Tell, <laughs> tell me about that story. Well, it was uh, the first hint that BC Ferries would be serving uh, booze on the uh, in the buffet was on our site. We got a scoop yeah. and we ran it and uh, we were first. Great story that every single other media outlet was quickly scrambling to match. That was a fun day. <laughs> yeah, that was a good day. <laughs> it's always day. it's always great to scoop the pants off the competition for sure. So I think, you know, that I, I mentioned that just to kind of back up the bona fides for you guys in this you. website that you guys are legit uh you're not out there just you know you know got an yeah. axe to grind against this government so um so when you asked for the interview and you were told that he didn't have time to talk to you yeah. did you put it to them that look this this is baloney i'm not being treated fairly i i asked for clarification and uh, i i chatted um off the record with a few of his staff and just to make sure that i understood and and i told them uh, you know when i asked last year i had only been in the press gallery for a little over a month and so when they said no to be to be honest i understood uh, I was still brand new, and so it made sense for them to be cautious, and I, and I said so at the time. I, In fact, I ran a piece last year saying, would have liked to have interviewed the premier. They said, no, I'm fine with that. Here's what I would have liked to have asked him. This year was a little different. I've been around for a year. Um, the premier and all members of his cabinet take my questions in, in media availabilities. Well, and, yeah, it's like it's not like anybody in the hallway is refusing to talk to you. No, not at all. Not yeah. in the slightest. It's and not like you have this like, rebel news or something, and, and you got politicians saying, I'm no. not talking to you. No, and I I think that our questions have always been fair and respectful, and in fact, the premier and his staff have both said so uh, themselves. So what what's he afraid of? I mean, why would he? I don't see what he gets out of this other than a negative news story well, on that's, himself. That's what I I was kind of surprised. I, I kind of thought that they were smarter than this. I thought that they would be the premier is regularly sees much scarier faces than mine, and yeah. would survive fifteen minutes with me, you know, unscathed. <laughs> No, this listen. This guy's a pretty slick politician, he is. and uh, he can handle himself with with the best of them. In in my uh, experience, so I mean, it's not I just like think it's a cheap shot, man. This is like you know a cheap way for the premier's office to to treat you guys, and I I think that's uh, ridiculous. Um, what would you have asked him? I know you've got an interesting you've got an interesting story up on your site now, which I recommend to people saying this is what i would have asked the guy what well, would you have asked we just i mean obviously any conversation would flow but i mean we wanted to ask him about everything from why his government has done better than previous governments on lng um you have a good well, are you gonna throw him a softball like oh, that why not something we something <laughs> we agree with i mean that, that is something i wanted to i'm genuinely interested sure um you know he's got a good relationship with justin trudeau and jason kenny how does that work how did he do that and what kind of benefits does that have for bc i also would have liked to have asked about you know Ginny sims resigned from Cal Cabinet because of an yeah. active police investigation, should she maybe have also 
resigned from caucus, um, you know, temporarily stepped aside, that kind of thing. I mean, I don't think the questions that I would have asked are all that different or indeed at all different from what you probably. Well, I can guarantee you that he's probably been asked all of those questions already because some of those questions you just mentioned, I talked to him about just the other day. So it's not like he was going to get blindsided. I mean, do you have any secret questions up your sleeve you're going (laughs) to slam him with? Well, I would have liked to have asked him which Batman is his Batman. But other than that, no, no, no curveballs for the premier. And whatever he answered on the Batman question and others, I I would have. What's the Batman? The Batman, you know, which Batman is his Batman? Michael Keaton. uh, Oh, I see. You know. Christian Bale, that kind of thing. Everyone's got their own Batman. I'm sure the premier does as well. But uh, so no, I other than that, no, I didn't have any secret, you know, any cards up my sleeve. I just wanted to ask him straight questions and I would have printed his answers. Okay. I encourage people to check out your story on the Orca. Thanks for coming in. Thank you very much. That's McLean Kay on his non-interview with uh, Premier John Horrigan. Talk about that public art installation in Vancouver now that has everyone talking. And I'm talking, of course, about the spinning chandelier. This thing is amazing. $4.8 million. Seven foot tall spinning chandelier installed under a bridge. And twice a day, it spins around 3,400 kilograms of crystals spinning around. Now, when you hear that price tag, $4.8 million, remember, that was not taxpayers' money. This was an art piece that was commissioned by West Bank with the real estate developer, and they've installed this, and it's got everyone talking. My next guest, Melody Ma, has written a fascinating piece for the TIE, where she's a contributing editor and writer. Uh, She calls the spinning chandelier insensitive, especially in a city with homelessness, a homelessness crisis. And uh, she's with The Star. I want to make sure I got that right. The Star. Melody, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Okay, we also have Claire Allen, Simi Simi Sarah's show contributor on the the, uh, line. Hi, Claire. Hey, Mike. Okay, Melody, let me go to you first. Give me your take on the the spinning chandelier. Have you been down there to see it? Yeah, and I think the the problem with the spinning chandelier is that it demonstrates that something is broken within our public art commissioning process. And that's the point I'm trying to make. The $4.8 million comes from a mandated uh, fee that the, the, uh, the developer has to either pay or contribute in the form of public art. And the fact that we have a spinning chandelier in a city where there's so much housing inequality, it's kind of like just pointing at folks and saying, hey, let them eat some chandelier or let them eat cake. Um, why did we have the chandelier that come uh, that came to fruition in the first place? Why are people so angry? Did the city not anticipate this? And there's clearly something that could be re-looked at from a public art process point of view for the okay. city. Okay. Do you think like a chandelier is sort of a symbol of privilege and wealth? Is that your is that one of the things that offends you about it? Yeah, and I think it's, it's not just myself. I think that is part of the public discourse. The public is saying, like, look at the insensitivity when we do have so much homelessness in Vancouver, when we have um, a opioid crisis, when we look at Oppenheimer Park, and now we have this $4.8 million chandelier that is spinning around. Um, why is this happening? Okay, when you, when you went down to check it out yourself, did you see the chandelier spinning? Uh, no, I think it actually just started spinning. 
um, it's now three times a day, but there was some sort of issue with it that they were fixing. Okay, didn't you th- do you think it looks kind of nice or cool or exciting or a lot of people want to go check it out? I mean, there's a lot of things that look really cool and exciting. I think uh, there's definitely an outrage that is with this chandelier, and it's just completely insensitive in terms of the context of the piece. Okay, even though it's not the public's money, though, right? I mean, this is the $4.8 million, a heck of a big chunk of money, but it's coming from the developer. It's not coming from taxpayers. Does that make a difference? Well, it it is part of the public art contribution that that the developer is mandated to offer as part of the deal when they build over 100,000 square footage. Um, they they must either provide a certain dollar amount per square footage towards public art that is on site, or um, that is a, a fee that they pay into a public art fund. So this is a civic mandate that they must offer okay. in exchange for the additional density. Okay. So in a way, it is part of the, the public realm. It is part of a public mandate that we have determined as a city that we want more public art in the public realm. And this is one way to achieve it. Um, but that doesn't, uh, but what I'm trying to say here is that developers have way too much curatorial power in terms of determining what type of public art can be in Vancouver and therefore determining what the culture of our city looks like. Okay, so you think, when, the, you think there should have been public input on the public art? Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I think yeah. two things that there are twofold. I'm not saying that the public should have like the final say on a piece of public art. Art is subjective at the end of the day, but at least create public art that is neighborly, that is respective of the context of our whether our times or the neighborhood. Get okay. input early on in the process that reflects what a neighborhood's history is or what a neighborhood's aspiration is and incorporate that into the direction of a piece of art. Okay, let's go to let's go to Claire Allen. Claire, I know you what do you think about this thing? You've been down to see it, right? Uh, yeah, I have been down yeah. to see it. I also haven't seen it spinning because I know it only spun at two times during the day at two separate uh, hours. So I haven't seen it um, in its full glory, I guess, but I have yeah. seen it hanging there. I really enjoyed Melody's piece. I thought that there were some really interesting points that she brought up about about public art. I think the issue I take is about the um, sort of a committee or oversight into public art. I mean, art in its... Um, what it's supposed to challenge you. It's supposed to be disruptive. That is sort of like the nature of art, public art. And I yeah. just think that if it were to go to committee, that this public consultation would water down that disruptive nature of public art. And in the city of Vancouver, you know, t- for development of any type, there's a ton of red tape, a ton of bureaucracy. I'm just wondering how many more layers of bureaucracy do we need in the process of development? If a, you know, uh, West Bank they have to uh, meet certain requirements from the city, do we need to add another hoop for them to jump through for something right. that really doesn't affect the well-being of people? It's not, you know, um, it's not a engineering in regards to a building or something like that or, you know, the vertical height. It is a piece of public art. It's supposed to make you think. And I just think if we set it to committee, we'll take away that aspect of public art. Okay. But Melody, what do you think of that? I think public art is part of public well-being and the fact that when a lot of people walking past by or even thinking of the chandelier, 
like it, and it produces public anger and outrage, that's not public good. That's public harm. That's not part of public health. And this is what this piece is doing. In terms of the bureaucracy component, public art that is commissioned by the city already is um, reviewed by a selection panel that is supposed to reflect the diversity of neighbors um, around that piece of art as well as arts experts. So we already have that standard for civically, um, for city commissioned public art. But when it comes yeah. to developer public art, we're just saying, okay, they can do whatever they want to a certain extent. Um, developers also have the alternative of contributing to a fund by cash in lieu. What I'm saying in my argument is that actually, instead of getting developers to uh, commission their own art and determine the art in our city, why don't they contribute cash in lieu instead um, and then uh, yeah. and let that go through the civic process that we have okay. so that it is cognizant of neighbors that are around the public okay. piece. Okay, Claire, I think one of the things, a good hallmark of a, an effective piece of public art is if it generates a lot of people talking about it. And I think certainly that this particular installation would tick that box. I mean, here we're talking about it on the radio. There's been lots of coverage of this chandelier. And I wonder if in the future, if this starts to create buzz in the city that, hey, this is something to see. And if you are visiting Vancouver, make sure you go check this thing out. I mean, that could actually help maybe draw people to the city as a tourist attraction. But I don't know. Do you, you think it's good, though? You like it, though, right? I do. Where? I do yeah. like it. I, I, you know, I actually, I, I think it's beautiful when I see it. I think it's a, a really beautiful piece. I mean, I don't think people can argue that a chandelier isn't beautiful. Um, I do think that you're right. Pu public art is something that attracts people to our city. We have some really, yeah. some really interesting examples of it. However, going back to what Melody said about, you know, um, Produce if, if a developer wants to give a, a percentage of uh, a dollar figure to the city, you know, yeah. the city has produced some controversial art as well. I used to yeah. live across the street from the Main Street Poodle, and that yes. was a partnership with TransLink, the city, and the federal government. And some money from the city was pitched into that piece of art. And, you know, some people didn't like it. We heard a lot about the Poodle and, and how they didn't think it was reflective of, of uh, Main Street or the neighborhood, and they didn't... Um, I thought it was a waste of money. So I don't think you can really win in this. And because art is so subjective, I don't think you can really win. And I also think, you know, Melody was talking about how the chandelier is sort of the embodiment of inequality, that this is a piece that is sort of um, offensive because yeah. of what our city is going through. And there's no argument that we have an opioid crisis and that we have an issue with homelessness. But I mean, we have other pieces of art that are privately donated. They may be temporary, like the Dolly statues that have, uh, Salvador Dolly statues that have been down in Vancouver. And um, I don't see the same outrage with those pieces of art with the chandelier. And I think that we are sort of making an assumption that individuals that are of a lower socioeconomic status in life cannot appreciate art that is, you know, unobtainable. Most art is unobtainable. I can't afford to have yeah. a huge chandelier in my house. It wouldn't even right. fit. I live in a small space. <laughs> so, but I'm not offended by it because right. I see it and I think is beautiful. And I think that is what we're assuming that people of, you know, of lesser means will look at the art and automatically be angered where they might think that's a beautiful structure that's up there. And I just think okay. that might be the wrong assumption. Melody, what do you, we heard both sides of it there in all those calls. We just got a minute left. If you'd like to comment on anything you heard there, Melody. 
I think that at the end of the day, we need to realize that the city mandated the developer to contribute this art piece, whether it's on-site contribution or a cash in lieu. I think citizens should have an input if we are going to be the ones walking around it, if we're going to be the ones who are going to live with it. Okay, okay, um, Claire, we we have some sort of input. Thank, thanks, man. I just hate to step on you there. 30 seconds. Claire, do you think people should just go check it out for themselves and maybe decide? Um, I think everyone should take time to yeah. appreciate all the public art in all of our cities here in Metro Vancouver. Okay. And I think that it this art has achieved what art is supposed to achieve, is made people think and started a right. conversation. Um, at the end of the day, it was private money. And I okay. think that that's what it did. It did what it want, needed to do. My thanks there to Melody Ma and Claire Allen. This is Mike Smith. i got lots more. Stick around. One of the most fun things to do in Vancouver is go for a night out to live theater. And if you love improv comedy, you must love Vancouver Theater Sports. Vancouver's number one improv comedy company. And over Christmas, they have their theater sports year in review on Granville Island. Let's check in with a couple of the Vancouver Theater Sports performers now. Lauren McGibbon in the studio. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming in. Also, Brian Anderson is here. Hi, Brian. Hi, Mike. Good to be here. Okay, guys, this is super cool stuff. Now, I imagine that when you're doing kind of improv on-the-spot comedy, uh, you quite often are riffing on maybe sort of current events or stuff that's on people's minds in the city, right? Would that be fair to say? Like, I think know? so. I, yeah. think, I, I think I kind of surprise myself. A lot of the things I read or see or hear show up in my improv, uh, yeah. depending on the day, definitely. Yeah, the, the different pop culture things. I think that it's also a wonderful joy because you either know a lot about it or you know nothing about it. And <laughs> either way, it's fun to watch. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let me, uh, I'll read a couple of headlines here to you. And maybe you guys can tell me in your year in review if this kind of stuff comes up or you think it's sort of fertile ground, ground for improv. Like the transit strikes in Metro Vancouver, right? We had two almost shutdowns of the bus system and then the SkyTrain system solved at the last minute, but everybody freaking out about a transit a transit strike. Is that like a type of thing, Lauren, that might come up at theater sports? Definitely. Um, yeah. This to me is, I like to work specifically using genre. So when I hear something like this, I kind of like to do that thing of reimagining what could happen. So when I hear that, I like to think, um, it creates kind of a Mad Max post-apocalyptic <laughs> world of no transit in Vancouver. I want to see those characters. I want to see what the resource of value is. That's where my imagination goes. I want to take something that we're all dealing with to the extreme and see right. what happens. Yeah, what do you fun. think, Brian? Well, it's fun to like, t- take things like that, take something trivial and make it uh, just the most important thing ever. Um, even like the themes that come out of that, the, the, the last minute aspect of it, like we wouldn't necessarily reenact a transit strike, but we'd find uh, another scenario where it's uh, the two-year-old's out of juice and we've got only till 5 a.m. to solve this thing and great crisis in all directions. Okay, how about politics? <laughs> Has that ever come up? I mean, we've just gone through a federal election here in the last little while. 
Lauren, would you, does politics come up it, at, at improv? It does. We actually yeah. did a show at the last American election <laughs> called Trump Card. Oh. And it was kind of this amazing thing because we, we had, I played Hillary Clinton quite often. You, you played Trump as well. I played Trump times. as well oh. a few times. But our, in our heads, when we were making the shows, we were like, well, there's no way he's going to win. There's no way. We had a Pierre Trudeau character, and then he won. And we kind of went, Oh, oh, we have to keep going because we had this. We're like, oh, what if Trump won? Ha, 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 ha. And then he did. So we kind of had to change the show. But for me, um, I, again, um, I like to think about this audience coming in. How is politics going to affect them? So something like on a local level. So like maybe taking the extremes of federal issues, but like putting it into like, you know, uh, something like the Parks and Rec Department, that right. kind of thing. Oh. And I'm very character focused. So for me, it's an opportunity to work on impersonations, that kind of stuff. How about you, Brian? What did you think of the federal election this year? I mean, a guy like Justin Trudeau, I mean, he's got to be gold for some material, isn't he? He's got some gold there. It's tricky because yeah. you don't necessarily want to get into impressions. That's certainly not yeah. our, our forte there. But looking at the the extremes of uh, how things are reported, the extremes of uh, just the the stances that people take. I think there's there's fun to be found in the, the ludicrousness of that sometimes. Right. So when people come to a performance at Theatre Sports uh, in Vancouver, how does it how does it work, Lauren? Like, what what can people expect? Are people are the performers sort of given a topic, and then you got to kind of riff on it or improv on the on a random topic that's given to you? Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, depending on the show, like our showcase shows are a bit more formatted. They're very genre based, so we're playing like within a genre. But if they come to a theater sports match, that's our flagship show, uh, the most popular, I would say. It's two teams and right. basically doing an improv competition. And the what we say in the preamble, they come in, what they can expect is that everything is made up in the spot based on their suggestions. So they're creating the oh, show man. with us. And so that's why it's such a fun experience for the audience. So you go, great, uh, we want this scene to take place in uh, a, a place of business, what was one of your first summer jobs? And mm. they'll yell whatever they yell, whether it be a video store clerk or oh. a lifeguard or whatever it was. And that immediately, that's what the scene's about. It's not up to us. So it's uh, they're essentially writing the show with us. Yeah, okay. One, Go ahead, Brian. I say one of the fun things on the year in review show, we do about half the show um, inspired by the weird headlines that have actually happened. And then the, the back half, the second half of the show, is inspired by things that have happened to members of our audience. Okay. So we get them at the half to write little headlines of, here's what happened to me in 2019. And okay, I can see how that would be fun for the audience. Is it fun for you guys, though? I mean, it sounds like a lot of pressure. Man, you got to come up with stuff right on the, <laughs> off the bat. In a weird way, actually, it's way more pressure to get hit with something you've done a million times before. Because mm -hmm. then you feel like, how am I going to keep this fresh? How am I going to keep it there? One of my great joys is to hit a suggestion or an inspiration that... I have no idea what this thing is. Let's play. Yeah, exactly. And for me, for the most important part of a scene is in improv, we don't have sets, we don't have costumes, we don't have a script, but we do have uh, performers, we have actors. So for me, as long as there's an interesting dynamic relationship between the two characters in the scene, um, everything, the suggestions 
that's going to inform it and take it to a new interesting area. So mm-hmm. I like to think of it, and I think that's why the audiences enjoy it so much, because it's about showing them that any character in any situation um, is going to come up against some very absurd, hilarious <laughs> things. Okay, speaking to Lauren McGibbon and Brian Anderson from the great uh, Vancouver Theater Sports Improv Comedy Company, and they got their year in review coming up. Uh, down on Granville Island over over Christmas. Brian, do you ever get in a situation where you're given a topic and you say go and you kind of just blank? I oh, mean, yeah. Is it, oh, you do, huh? Oh, yeah, okay. that, that happens all the time. I think when you, when you start off in improv, the great nightmare you have is, I'm going to be up there and I'm not going to know what to do and people will be staring. And that happens a lot. Oh, but no. you, you just... you that must you, feel terrible. <laughs> well, you get into a certain uh, point where you realize it's not the end of the world. It's, okay, I'm up here and it's uh, looking a little goofy for a while, but... Uh, I think that's part of the, the excitement as well, is that the audience is sitting there, I wonder what's going to happen next. And we're actually on stage, too, going, I wonder what's going to happen next. <laughs> How about you, Lauren? I mean, you ever had a scary moment like that? I actually just had one this week because oh. we, we had a suggestion of, a, uh, of an audience member. We're like, where do you work? And they said, I work at a credit union. And so I was playing kind of the manager boss, and I was trying to congratulate them on being the employee of the year. And I realized I don't know anything about investments or mortgages you know i'm a you know i'm a gypsy uh, actor <laughs> i don't so but i was having to talk about all the great things they've done for the credit union and i sounded like a, a moron i was like oh, no. when it comes to implementing interest for goods okay. and services uh, but because i committed to just using words i didn't understand out of context it was actually yeah. really fun okay guys are you game to try a little improv right now sure, sure. okay cool so here's here's the idea we got we'll do a little two minute improv okay so what we'll do is this will give people a little taste of maybe what to expect at the show if they come down there to granville island here so i'm going to give you guys a scenario and then we'll start the clock running, two minutes on the clock. Okay. And when the time is up, the two minutes are up, you will hear this sound. Okay, does okay. that sound fair enough? That That's sounds fair. excellent. Okay, th- let's do it then. Okay, so it's the clock is about to start, and I'm going to give you your scenario. Okay. The Prime Minister travels to Paris. Okay. Go for it. Uh, uh, I'm not entirely sure what the uh, the plan is here. Okay, um, Mr. Prime Minister, I'm yeah, so yeah, glad yeah. you asked that. So, um, they, they, we, they like me here. I speak French. Exactly, <laughs> and you know that's that's money you can take right to the bank. You speak French. We're in France. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, what the plan is is we asked for a meeting with the president. Okay. He said no. Oh. So oh. we uh, asked then for a meeting with. Any president. Oh, okay. Okay, great. So uh, the only people that said yes... Do I look good from this side? Um, n- you know what? I'm just going to do a few stretches. Okay, oh. you stretch, you yeah. get ready. The oh. president who agreed to meet with you is the president of Euro Disney. Oh. Yeah, so... Oh. Um, so, but he would only agree if you if you he, put he, on this outfit. He's, he's not going to tweet about me afterwards, is he? Uh, well, uh, we're hoping he will, because um, basically, essentially, what's going to happen is um, you are going to be Prince Charming for a day. Okay, I will, I will put on the outfit. Certain costumes I will not wear anymore. This one, I'm good. Okay, great. Now, um, well, uh, that brings me to my next question. Uh, what costumes will you not wear? Um, vegetables. 
Um, okay. Anything from the food, food, food. Uh, okay, well, variety? that's that's a big problem what, because what? this is all a publicity stunt to uh, talk about your incentives on health and mm-hmm. supporting farmers. Oh. So essentially, you will be Prince Charming riding a vegetable float. What? Which which vegetable in particular? They're mostly root. Uh-huh. Uh, because of the, those grow effectively in the winter in okay. Canada, it's, it's a series of beets and potatoes. I, I, I think I can I can handle that. Then we we've, we have talked talk to focus groups. There's not any like beet beet lovers out there that were. I can I can beatbox. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the two minutes is up. Pretty good, guys. <laughs> Thank you. Pretty good. I love moments it. to treasure. Yeah, I love it, guys. That's really fun. All right. Um, thanks for that. And uh, you guys are doing a wonderful job down there at Vancouver Theatre Sports. I encourage everyone to go check it out for a fun night. And Lauren and Brian, thank you guys for coming in. Thanks, Mike. It's thanks been great. for having us. You bet. I appreciate it. That's Laura, Lauren McGibbon and Brian Anderson. They are improv performers at Vancouver Theatre Sports. Vancouver Theatre Sports got their 2019 year in review going on. Also, the 2020 year of predictions. It all takes place at the Improv Center on Granville Island. And the performances are from December 26th through to January 4th. Tickets start. You can't beat the ticket prices here. $12.75. You can get them from vtsl.com.